Prayer precedes revival. Always. Long before revival ever comes to a person, to a church, or to a community, there's prayer. You study any revival in history, and you will find that this is always the case. Revivalists and revival historians have expressed this truth in several ways. One of my heroes of the faith, a revivalist named Leonard Ravenhill, said at God's counter, there are no cell days. For the price of revival is always the same, travail. Another man who experienced great revival in his church said, Revival is the solution to our ills in both church and society as a whole. However, revival cannot be optional. It cannot be one prayer request among many. Revival must become our desperate cry if we're going to see God move among us in authentic New Testament power. So how do we pray or what do we pray if we're going to pray for revival? Open your Bible to Habakkuk 3. Verses 1 and 2. That's what we're going to look at. That should be page 731 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Habakkuk 3.1 says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known in wrath. Remember mercy. The title of the message is Prayer and Revival. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we need you. We need you today to help us lay aside any cares of life that we may have brought in so that we can focus. We need you to break down our natural barriers to the things that your word would say that might challenge us. We need you to examine our lives, to search us and try us and see if there's any, anything displeasing in our lives that would hinder us from being revived and living for your glory. We need you, Father, to make the word plain. We need you to revive our spirits. We need you to renew our hearts. We need you to fill us with your spirit and send us out into a a lost and a dying world to bring the life of Christ to those who need it. We need you in so many ways today. We need you to strengthen us and we need you to encourage us. We need you to, to fill us. We need you. So God, today as we look at your word, help us in this time to just just be focused. To just set and listen, think about what you have said. Let us take it to our hearts and let us put it into practice. As we leave here today, let us be a people crying out in desperation for revival. It's truly our, our culture testifies constantly that there is a desperate need of revival in our day. Fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. Let your will be done. Let us respond in faith. Have your way, we ask, in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. We looked at this a few weeks ago, just kind of in a, in a glancing. If you remember then, there was a flow of thought in Habakkuk's prayer, right? I've heard the reports of what you've done. I'm in awe of what you've done. Do it again. Do it again right now in our day. That's how prayer, that's how you pray for revival. That's the way you pray a revival prayer. That's a a big, bold prayer. It gives us a great pattern to pray for revival. And and we have to pray if we want to see revival, whether it's in our lives, in our church, in our community. Because, as I said, there is no revival without prayer. I mean, this this is a rule without exception. Revivals do not come to complacent people who are not seeking the Lord and striving to have Him pour out His Spirit and and seek Him and to do things in their lives. Revival must have prayer. There is no prayer without revival. And in the book of Habakkuk, in this one prayer that Habakkuk prays, we see four ways to follow his example. The first is to know what God has done. I have heard thy speech. And what he's saying is, he's not saying so much, I've heard your voice, O God, as he's saying, I've heard about the things that you have done. But Habakkuk was a student of God's Word, and because of that, he knew all the things God had done. He knew the ways that God had demonstrated His power and His greatness in the past. And, and so he was aware of that. And so he based it upon that, I know, God, what you've done. Right? So like Habakkuk, if we are to pray for revival, we have to be students of Scripture. We have to know what God has done in Scripture. We, we kind of need to know what God has done in church history, to some extent, in the past. Because before I will pray, God, do it again, 
I have to know what again is. So we don't have time to look at a lot this morning, but I just want to show you a few things that God has done. A few of the great works that God has done in church, in history, for us to pray, God, do these things again. There will be a lot of references that we'll cover quickly, and if you want to study it out on your own, you can. The first is that God has brought deep conviction through the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 66 and Ezra 9 both speak of people trembling under the weight of God's word. I mean, think about the, I love that word picture, but think about that. These were people and their lives were out of sync with God. And as they read that their lives were out of sync with what God had said, rather than making excuses, rather than trying to find a reason why it was okay, they trembled at the word of God because they were wrong. God was right. John 16, it talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. The Holy Spirit's job is He is to make people aware of the fact they have sinned against a holy God. That He is to make people aware of the fact they are not righteous and they have no righteousness of their own. And He is to make people aware of the fact they will face the awesome and terrible judgment of God. Now, of course, the implication is they would fear. But again, we, we don't see that in our day. We don't see this sort of conviction where people hear about their sin and are bothered by it. Instead, people hear about their sin and they're largely okay with it. And then in Acts 2.37, it's the end of the sermon on the day of Pentecost, and the people cried out, Lord, what must, what must I do? They didn't get mad at Peter for preaching the sermon. They didn't get mad at the people that were there. They didn't say the church is full of hypocrites. They didn't say everybody has a few flaws and faults. We all got to be, nobody's perfect. What must I do? I think we'd all agree this level of conviction is, is missing in our day. But I, I don't want us just to think about this in, in relation to people out there. I mean, what about you and I? What, what do you and I do when we read in the Bible and we see that our lives are out of sync with God's Word? What do, you, what do we do? Do we, do we tremble? Oh my gosh. God has said to do one thing and I am doing another. Do I tremble at the fact I am disobeying an awesome and a holy God? Or do I just go, hmm, well, anyway, he's perfect. When the Holy Spirit brings conviction through the Word, how do I respond to that? Do I say, what must I do? Or do I just say, oh God, forgive me, help me not to do it again, just so it will ease my conscience and kind of make me feel better and take away that guilty feeling. And then I go on about the way I've always lived. I think in all of these things, we shouldn't think no so much about God, do it again out there. Sure, it needs to be done out there. Peter says judgment must first begin in the house of God. So whatever we want done out there, it needs to be done in here first and foremost. So God, do it again. Bring deep conviction from the Holy Spirit for sin. Secondly, we see that lives were radically transformed in Scripture. Like Acts 9 and 1 Timothy 1, both are of the Apostle Paul. Acts 9 details his conversion as a Pharisee headed to Damascus to Persecute the church. First Timothy, he talks about it being a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But now he was an apostle, Jesus Christ. I mean, you talk about a, a change. Most of us, if we've been raised in church, we're familiar with Paul's conversion. But think about what Paul did. Paul persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. He went place to place, doing what he could, finding Jewish Christians and taking the men and women to jail. He was, the Bible says, an insolent man, which the idea of insolent, what it meant there was he hurt people and he enjoyed hurting people. He liked his job of hurting people. If Paul lived today and was like that, he would be on a terrorist watch list. And he was turned from a terrorist against the church to a promoter of the church, an apostle for the church. That's a radical life change. Acts 19, it speaks of people being saved out of witchcraft. And they were so delivered from witchcraft that they came together 
and they burned their witchcraft books. Right? What they did was they determined these books are so evil, and what they do is lead people so far from God that it's better to destroy them than to do anything else with them. We don't want anybody else to be infected with this junk. So we'll destroy it. But here's what's significant. The Bible says that their books were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I did some checking on Thursday. And on Thursday, silver went for about $17.75 an ounce. So assuming one silver piece is around an ounce, the books they destroyed were worth around $887,000. They could have sold it and got that money and given it to missions. They didn't. It was just too evil. It needed to be destroyed. I mean, that's a pretty radical transformation. To be so saved... That you're willing to destroy something of such significant monetary value simply because you don't want the evil to spread to others. How different is what we see in our day. How many people make professions of faith and get up and walk away and are no different in any way than they were before? How many people in our church have we seen walk the aisle, pray this altar, call upon Jesus and never come back? How many people that aren't here today have made professions of faith, been baptized and have no care, no concern for the church of Jesus Christ? But again, let's not just worry about the people who are out there. What about us? How are we different because of Jesus? Think about in your life. What do you do or not do just because of Jesus? Not because you're 40 instead of 20. Not because you're married instead of single. Not because you have kids instead of being childless. Not because you have an important job in the community as opposed to being unemployed. That you would say, besides coming to church... This is what I do. This is what I don't do. I do this. I live this way just because of Jesus. If we've been born again, there ought to be something. For what we see in Scripture, there ought to be a lot of something. Scripture says we are a new creation. Old things have passed away. If all Jesus is... Is a get out of hell free card. And I am largely the same as I would be apart from Jesus. Something is wrong. Do it again. Radically transform people through the gospel. A third one that we see that we need. People filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're going to take some time on this one because in a lot of ways this one is a key to the others. And I want you to, we're going to start looking at at Jesus and how the Holy Spirit was at work in his life. So turn to um, Luke 3, verses 21 and 22, page 782. So Luke 3, 21. Jesus' baptism. Now when the people were baptized, it came to pass, Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was open and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon Him and a voice from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in Thee I am well pleased. Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes upon Him. But now look at chapter 4 and verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. First, so Jesus, the Holy Spirit, comes upon him. Now Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. He comes back to Jordan, and at that point, the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. He goes out in the wilderness. He is tempted, and he overcomes the devil. And then look at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit... Unto Galilee. And there went out a fame of him all around the region round about. Now what was the point? Why 
Did Jesus, the Holy Spirit, come upon him and fill him and lead him and him walk in the power? What was all of that going to do? Well, look at verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord, Jesus reading from Scripture, is going to say, This is fulfilled right now in me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is upon Jesus, filling Jesus, empowering Jesus, so that He could heal the brokenhearted, proclaim deliverance, give sight to the blind, spiritually blind, Set the oppressed free and preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, what we have to see in this is there's a, a combination that is often missing in our day of word and spirit in this. Right? There is word and spirit at work in what Jesus is going to do. He is going to preach the gospel. That's word. He's going to heal. The Holy Spirit is going to anoint him to preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit is going to work through him to heal the brokenhearted. That's spirit. He is anointed to proclaim deliverance to the captives. That's word. He is anointed to bring the recovery of sight to the blind. That's spirit. He is anointed to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's also spirit. He is anointed to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's word. That's important because in our day we typically have a division between word and spirit. You have some churches that are all word and we don't even talk about the Holy Spirit. You have some churches that are all spirit and there's no real mention of the word or focus on the word. Which is right. Neither. They're both wrong. The, 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 the example we see in Scripture is not word or spirit. It is word and spirit. We see it all throughout. We see it here in Jesus' life. But in Ephesians 5, Paul says what? We are to be what? Filled with the Spirit. Right? And we looked at this a few weeks ago. It is be being filled. It is a continual thing. You and I continually need the Spirit. His help, His guidance, His leadership in our lives. If we were to look in Acts, we see Word and Spirit working together over and over again. In Acts chapter 4, verse 29, the apostles are threatened. They're told, preach no more in the name of Jesus. And they go back. And they gather the church and they tell them about the threatenings and they gather and pray and they say, Oh God, send your Holy Spirit. Give us boldness to preach the word and do signs and wonders through the name of your son, Jesus Christ. They pray for word and spirit to work together. And when they got up, they were all filled with the spirit. They spoke the word of God with boldness and signs and wonders were done in the name of Jesus Christ. Word and Spirit work together all throughout the New Testament. All throughout the early church. And it should work that way now. The kingdom of God advanced. Has always advanced. As normal, everyday people are Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. And operated and lived in Word and Spirit. In our day of Christian fame, Christian famous people, and they're the ones that you have this great podcast with hundreds of thousands of listeners. And they have 43 churches all over. That's not how the kingdom has ever advanced. The kingdom will never advance that way. It doesn't. Do you know how the kingdom advances? When ordinary people, you and I, are spirit-filled and spirit-led and we do word and spirit in our lives, that's how the kingdom advances. That's how revival happens. That's how communities and lives and homes are transformed. Not because we need a famous person to come and, and do this famous thing. We need Christians, ordinary, everyday Spirit-filled, Word and Spirit working together in their lives. And that will advance the kingdom. That will bring the kingdom into our homes, into our community. Do we see the Spirit working in these ways? Do do we see ordinary, everyday Christians, Spirit-filled and Spirit-led, working in Word and Spirit on the regular in our day? We don't. But we should. And I emphasize the Spirit because the Spirit is the key to all of this. 
Right? It is the Spirit who brings conviction. It is the Spirit who born, makes people born again and changes the lives. It is the Spirit who empowers us. If we get word and spirit wrong, we won't get the rest of it right. We must be right on this. We must seek this. We must have it. When we are saved, we are born again by the Spirit. We are indwelt and sealed by the Spirit. We are gifted and empowered by the Spirit. That is every believer. If you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, if you're saved, every bit of that is true about you. But what difference does that make in our lives? I mean, because if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that's the power of the Spirit, He raised Jesus from the dead. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, leads us, produces fruit in us, and empowers us. Shouldn't that be seen in some way? Shouldn't the power that raised Jesus from the dead living in me be seen in some way? But, but is it? I mean, is, is honestly, is the best we can hope for that I will be spirit-filled, spirit-led, and just barely stop from cussing somebody out at a sporting event? Is that really the best I can hope for? Is the best I can hope for to be spirit-filled and spirit-led and, and barely refrain from cussing somebody out at Walmart? Is the best I can hope for to be spirit-filled and spirit-led and basically stay the same as I've always been, except for maybe coming to church once a month or so? Is that honestly, is that the best I can expect? That is what we see in American Christianity, make no mistake. But it's not what we see in biblical Christianity. And it's not what we see in other places in the world. What God has done in those things that I mentioned, He is meant to do today. He wants to do today. He does do today. We have to cry out for that. We have to know that God has done these and that God still does these and God wants to do them. We have to know what God has done. And then we have to be in awe of what God has done. Go ahead and turn back to Habakkuk. Heard thy speech and was afraid. He was afraid. He, he felt a great sense of awe at the power of his God. As a Jewish man, he was very aware of the stories, of creation, of the Exodus, the promise of the Messiah. He had been taught those from a child. But he hadn't lost the awe and the wonder at those stories. Now, what about us? Do we feel a sense of awe? power of God that we read about in Scripture? I mean, if these stories are true, how do we respond to that? Think about creation. You read, I don't know how your Bible study is, my Bible study picks up every year at Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was up form and void, and the Spirit hovered on the face of the waters. God said, let there be. And there was. And God saw that it was very good. It was like nothing. It was just God. God's like, I think there ought to be stuff. And so he said there ought to be stuff, and stuff came. And the stuff that came was all good. And at the end of him saying stuff ought to be and that stuff coming, he said the stuff I've created is all very good. I mean, God didn't wrestle. He didn't use prior existing materials. God was just like, I think stuff ought to be, and there was. Are we in awe of a God who just speaks and worlds? Come into existence. What about the Exodus? God delivered his people from the largest, most powerful nation in the world at that time. And he did it in great and mighty acts, in judgments over the gods of Egypt, each one declaring, your gods are not real. There is only one God. And it's not Hurrah, it's not Hecate, it is Yahweh. Yahweh alone is God. And then just as one final demonstration, he parts the sea. And his people walk over on dry land. And when the Egyptians try, he drowns them. 
And you read that and go, gosh, wow. My God is amazing. Or, or what about Joshua and the Battle of Jericho? I mean, you talk about a story that makes no sense from a military standpoint. There is no military strategy that teaches you to walk around the city once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day and yell at the walls. And yet that's what they did. And the walls fell and the city fell and it was conquered. Just because God determined that's how it ought to be. Or what about God making the sun to stand still? Joshua and the army march all night. And they start to fight. And they fight all day. And they're winning. But the night is coming and the enemy's going to escape. And Joshua, in the midst of all of his army, says, Son, stand still. God extends the daylight so they can smite their enemies. Did you read that? Wow. I mean, that's amazing. My God is powerful. What about the life of Jesus? Jesus healed the sick. The lame and the blind, he raised Lazarus from the dead, he multiplied food, he walked on water, and much more. Do we read the Gospels and be like, wow, my Savior, he's amazing. Or Acts, the early church launches out and we looked at some, but Acts is just, I mean, it's just stories of God's power, delivering and saving and freeing and reviving. Do we read the book of Acts and be like, oh, oh God, you are amazing that you would choose to work through people in those ways. Or the end, Revelation. Whatever else you may think about Revelation, it is a story of God is awesome. Because God says, I think the world should end. And the devil fights against him. And God says, no, you lose. And I win. There is never a moment in the book of Revelation where God is not in absolute control of everything that goes on. Do we read the book of Revelation and say, wow, my God is awesome. How do we respond when we read these stories? How do we respond when we read in Ephesians where Paul says God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. Do, do we go, oh, that was neat. Or are we just led to worship? Led to pray big, bold prayers because we serve a God who is awesome. We have to be in awe of what God has done. We have to know this is what He has done and He's awesome. Because if we're not in awe, we won't do the next part. We won't believe. We won't cry out. We must, we must be in awe of the mighty power of God. Because if anything other than God captivates our awe, we will not be revived. We will not cry out for revival. We will not seek God with all of our hearts. So we know what God has done. Be in awe of what God has done. Believe God still does. What he has done. Packet says revive thy work. And he's saying do it again. I love this because Habakkuk isn't living in a time where these sort of things are happening. There are no mighty works of God being done. This includes the, I mean there are reasons. The lack of faith of the people. The sin of the people. But despite this, Habakkuk doesn't come up with all of these reasons. As to why God doesn't do what he's always done. Instead, Habakkuk says, do it again. I've heard of your works. I'm in awe of your works. Do them, do them again. What about us? Do we believe that God can do what He's always done? Do we believe that God is still as powerful and as awesome and as great? as desiring of souls to be saved and lives to be changed and people to be delivered as He's ever been? Or do we come up with reasons as to why these things aren't real and these things can't happen today. Lots of reasons. If you were to Google, you could find reasons. The time for these things has passed. It's plenty common to say that these sort of things happened and then now they don't happen anymore. I watched a, a video not long ago where the guy said, the age of miracles has ceased. 
These ideas that God doesn't do anything miraculous or supernatural anymore. But pretty much everything what we've talked about today, with what the Spirit does and what God does and Word and Spirit work together, that, that's all pretty supernatural. And, and I don't have time to give answers to all of these, but let me just kind of give you this. If the time for the supernatural has passed, what are we doing here? We just sang songs to a God we've never seen. We believe that He exists outside of time and has always been. We believe He spoke and the world came into being. We believe that He chose one person to make a family through so that He could bring a Messiah through. We believe that Messiah was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life. We believe that Messiah healed the sick, raised the dead, multiplied food, walked on water. We believe when He died, His death paid the penalty for our sins and the sins of the world. We believe He rose again. We believe He ascended into heaven and there intercedes for us. We believe this because God had people write it down in a book for us to study. And then God has kept this book for us all of these years despite worldly opposition to the book. So if the time for supernatural is passing, if we should not think about those things, which of what I just said was not supernatural? What was natural in anything I just said that makes up our faith? Even our salvation. Why do we believe? Because a supernatural Holy Spirit convicted us of our sin. And made us believe that our sin was worthy of judgment when we naturally didn't believe that. We then repented of our sin and believed on the Savior that we say rose again that we've never seen. And now we base our lives on a book that was written by people thousands of years ago. Everything about our faith is supernatural. There's nothing natural about anything that we're doing here today. And there shouldn't be. We serve a supernatural God who does supernatural things. We ought to believe that. But others would say, well, I don't think things like that still happen because I've never experienced it. And that's probably legit. We probably haven't experienced it. But, but again, again, I don't have time to give all the answers but does experience, does experience negate reality? Or lack of experience negate reality? Let me, let me give you kind of a silly example. If you've never eaten bacon, does that mean bacon's not a thing? Of course not. Your lack of experience doesn't define reality. Just because you may not have experienced these things that God has done, that doesn't negate reality that God has done them. Our experience or lack thereof is not the standard for anything. It's not rational. That's something. We live in a very in enlightenment society. So, I mean, it's just not rational to believe these sort of things. I mean, come on, walls falling down. What really happened was as they marched around it, it destabilized the walls because construction, engineering wasn't really very good then. And that yell in the music was the final push that made it fall over. And the three Hebrew children, I mean, big fireplaces in that time, they had cool spots. And so when they were thrown in, they fell into the cool spot. That's, that's how they lived. And, and, and on and, and on. But, but again, if, if I don't believe that my God can multiply food or cause walls to fall down, find the name of Anything would I believe He raised Jesus rise from the dead. I mean, truly, if I can't believe that God made walls fall down and save three men in a flaming fiery furnace, why would I believe anything about Jesus? If we're going to try to say, well, rationally, there's nothing about our faith that really is rational as far as that goes. It's all supernatural and it is all faith. On and on it goes. And like I said, I would like to answer them all, but we don't have time. And I've taken longer than I should. I just want to give you these two verses. I am the Lord, and I change not. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, 
forever. If I'm going to say God has stopped doing things God has previously done, I better have some really strong Bible verses. Not opinions, not ideas, not philosophy, Bible verses. Saying God isn't going to say it. And those, are going, those verses, whatever they are, they'll have to deal with the fact that God is the same and Jesus is the same. And if we begin to say God doesn't do what He's done, how do I know He'll save me? Because that's what God has done and what God has said. How do I know prayer matters? Because that's what God has done and what God has said. What do we do? How do we, where do we draw the line that God doesn't do what He's always done? Personally, I'm going to bank on the fact that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To know what God has done, be in awe of what God has done, believe God still does what He has done, pray for God to do it again. Habakkuk prayed, revive thy work in the midst of the years. Make known in wrath, remember mercy. I like that. In the midst of the years, he means right now. In wrath, they were under the judgment of God. Remember mercy. He's saying we don't deserve it. But be merciful. Be kind. Do now. Not, not in 20 years. Not in 100 years. Do it now, God. Do it again. That's the prayer we ought to pray. Do it now. Do it now in my life. Do it now in our church. Do it now in our community. Now, if we're going to pray for God to do it again right now, then there are two realities implicit in this prayer. One is that we need God to do it again. Do we believe that we need God to do again what He's done in the past? Habakkuk saw a great need. His people, they were drifting further and further away and he knew nothing but a mighty work of God would turn them back. Do we see the need? We should let me remind you of things I've mentioned before about the church in America. In America, around 3,000 churches are planted every year. At the same time, in America, about 3,500 churches close every year. So we're closing churches faster than we're planting churches. In America, about 85% of churches, or a high percentage of them, are in a state of decline. And what that means is, Though they're not the church, one of the 3,500 that will close this year, they will be one of the 3,500 that closes next year or the year after that or the year after that. There's a high rate of students raised in church who grow up and move off and abandon the church and abandon the faith. Statistics vary. The most common one I see is about 75%. Now, the reality though is this isn't just something going on out there somewhere. This is here. I mean, this is in, in Ghana. Right? In the last five or so years, three churches in Gaiman have closed. One of the churches that was closed was at one time when we moved to Gaiman was the largest, most thriving church in town. Another church that closed in the time prior to my before I arrived, it was the largest, most thriving church in town. On a given Sunday, among the, the Anglos of our town, there are only around 20% who are in church on any given Sunday. That means roughly 80% of the, the Anglo community either does not believe in Jesus or does not believe the church of Jesus has anything important for their lives. Now to kind of put in perspective, in China where it's essentially illegal to be a Christian, about 8-10% to 10 of the population is Christian. So, in Gaiman, in the buckle of the Bible Belt, we are doing just a little bit better than a country where you can be thrown in prison for having a Bible. We're not exactly killing it here. And, and here's the harsh reality. If we don't see the need for God to do in our day what He's done in the past, it's only because we're not being honest about the condition of the church in America and the condition of the church in Ghana. Let me show you my favorite gift. This right here, I believe, 
reveals the average professing evangelical Christian and evangelical church in America. Everything around them is burning down. Everything around them is falling apart. Everything of faith and values is dying out. And yet they tell themselves it's fine. It's fine. Everything will be okay. If we... If we do not see the need for God to do again in our day what He has done in the past, it is because we are either self-deceived or it is because we are satanically deceived. Because by no measure in the world is the church in America fine. And by no measure is the church in Gaiman fine. If God does not do a mighty work in our day, America will go the way of England, of Germany, Switzerland. Lest we forget, Germany is the land of Luther. The Protestant Reformation started in Germany. And it is a godless, atheist, post-Christian place. The Reformation continued in Switzerland under Zwigli. And it is a godless, post-Christian place. Protestantism thrived in England. And it is very much a post-Christian place. If we do not think it will happen here, we are fools. The church in America is not fine. The church in Gaiman is not fine. We have to see the need for God to do it again. And then we have to want God to do it again. Habakkuk did. He wanted God to revive his work in the midst of the years. But do we? The reality, the sad reality, is many professing believers do not. If you could guarantee that it would all be God, many would not want it. You know why? Because revival brings change. Revival changes us. We, we can't, you and I, if God brings revival into our heart, we cannot remain the same. That's not how revival works. There is no I'm revived and exactly as I've always been. That's not the way it works. It will change me, my values, my priorities, my speech, my actions, the way I spend my money, the way I use my time, my relationships, my time. Everything about me will change if God revives me. And if God brings revival to the church, it will change. It will change. And the reality is many people would rather things stay exactly the same and die as change and deal with the pain of change and live and thrive and reach our community for Christ. The number one reason churches die. It's not the moral failure of the pastor. It's not moral failure among the leadership, the deacons. It's not embezzlement among the treasurer. It's not even splitting over the color of the carpet. The number one reason churches die is because they refuse to change. They would rather do what they've always done the way they've always done it and let the church close and go out with nostalgic memories of how the church of their childhood was. Let's change anything in an effort to reach their community, to reach their children. So do we want it? Do we, do we want God to do it again? Are we willing to reject the status quo in our lives and our church so that God can do what only God can do. Because we can't keep going the way we are. And be revived at the same time. Revival will either push out the status quo. Or love of the status quo will push out revival. And in the end that decision will be made by us. And if let's just be real honest. How's our church doing? Are we, are we really killing it and thriving in, in town? Seeing lots of people saved? How are the children that are raised in our church? How many of the kids raised in our church go on and, and live thriving 
Jesus-filled lives. How many of them aren't in church anymore? How many? How long has it been since we baptized someone? How many people come to Sunday school, to Wednesday nights? How many people will come to the altars if we were to give an altar call? How many people cry and tear and weep over the lost? The reality is, if our church doesn't change, our church will die. This isn't just them out there either. This is us. Look around. This is a decline in attendance from just two years ago. A drastic decline in attendance from just two years ago. Either we, as the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church, take this seriously and cry out for revival for God to do it again. Or at some day we have that final service where we lock the door and we give the keys to somebody else and we hope it'll sell. Because a church can't continue in a state of decline and just an apathy forever. At some point the people run out. At some point the money runs out. At some point it dies. So, what about us? Do we want God to do it again in our lives? Do we want God to do it in our church? Do we want God to do it in our community? I do. I do. So we have to pray. Pray boldly. Pray consistently. Pray expectantly. Expectantly is hard because like Habakkuk we're not exactly seeing the sort of things that God has done in the past. But we still have to choose hope because what's the alternative? Cynicism? Doubts? Anger? Nihilism? What what are we going to do if we don't choose hope? I choose hope. I choose to be like Abraham who despite all that was against him and all that said contrary, believe that God would do what God had said. I believe God will do those things again in our church, in our community, in our lives. But before He'll do them again, we've got to ask, has He done them before? But I mean, is there deep conviction in your life, in my life, over sin? I mean, I was reading in, and we are way past my notes in time, but I was reading just yesterday in 2 Corinthians. Listen to what he says, Paul says, in 2 Corinthians 7. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, the fear of God. That's a strong statement, right? Cleanse ourselves. So, the conviction of sin, there, there is something in me I have to turn from my sin. I mean, I have to do something to put off the sin in my life, but how much sin do I have to put off? All of it. All filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. Not some, not most, not a lot. All of it. That's what we're called to. And of the flesh and the spirit. So it's not just the sins of the flesh, but it's also the false spiritualities. Listen, everything that is spiritual isn't of God. We can't embrace the weird spiritual stuff of our community and of our world and expect to be right with God. We have to put off the sins of the flesh and the sins of the spirit. Be spiritually pure. And we have to do it in perfect holiness. Perfecting holiness. So how pure are we supposed to be? When do we stop? When we're totally, completely, perfectly holy. And how do we do it? In the fear of the Lord. How many of us strive to put off sin out of the fear of the Lord? Because Hebrews tells us that without holiness, no man will see the Lord. So what happens if I'm not putting off holiness? What happens if I'm not trying to put that off in the fear of the Lord? According to Scripture, heaven's not going to be my home. So how how do you feel about your sin? We all have it. Does it bother you? Does it break you? Does it lead you to repentance? Do you seek to forsake it? Do you try to cleanse yourself? Are you striving to perfect yourself in holiness in the fear of the Lord? 
If not, then the first prayer needs to be, God, do it again in me. Not do it again in them. Do it again in, in me. What about your life being radically transformed? How different are you because of Jesus? If you were to take just an average unbeliever in our community and compare your values to their values, your actions to their actions, your reactions to their reactions, your speech to their speech, is there a difference? Because Scripture says there should be. We are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How are we different than our unbelieving co-workers, friends, neighbors, and loved ones. should be something. And if there's not, it has to start with, do that work in me. Radically change my life. And then God filling and empowering through the Holy Spirit. How is the Holy Spirit leading you on a daily basis? Because the picture in Galatians is that we keep in step on a moment-by-moment basis. So every one of us who are born again, we should be able to say, I'm aware of the Spirit leading me today. Yesterday He did this. How is the Spirit leading you? What is the Spirit empowering you to do? When the Spirit empowers people, there's there's stuff. It's not empowered to sit. It's empowered to be holy. It's empowered to share the Gospel. It's empowered to serve Jesus. It's empowered to make a difference. What is the Holy Spirit empowering you to do in your life? If there's nothing, then you need to start. God, do it again. Do it again in me. Revival has to be individual before it will ever be corporate. No revival will come to Northridge Free Will Baptist Church unless it comes to you and I as individuals. Because there is nothing that is the church. There's us. There's just us. And whatever our church is, it is a reflection of us. So if there is to be a revival in our church that leads to a renewal in our community, it needs to begin in me and in you as individuals. And then it spreads into things that are corporate. We're going to take time right now to to pray for God to do the work in us.